AC and Effers, it's time for the show. Hit it. Not only am I excited by throwing in some heavy music at the beginning of this podcast, it's Satania, the band, Behind the Curtain is the song, got it from the Free Music Archive, so we're totally cool. Enough of that foofy shit I had before. Hey, but Bronwyn Dickey makes her return to the podcast as her book, Pitbull, Battle Over an American Icon, Hits bookstores and paperback. How can you not want to listen to this episode when you have her saying stuff like this? You know, like, mm, what's a fact? Mm. Kills me every time. Okay, so you know the drill. Share the episode with people you think will dig it. Subscribe to the podcast and my newsletter. It's all free. I'm not that annoying, right? Right? has a Facebook page, too, so like that. So in any case, let's get to it. It's Bronwyn Dickey, episode 45 of the hashtag CNF podcast. What I was really following and chronicling sort of your accounting of the the book tour, uh, Mm -hmm. it was really a like almost a traumatic experience for you. Um, What surprised you most about the tour for Pitbull? And for those who might not be familiar, uh, kind of like refresh us about what a lot of those events were like around this book that just became really like a lightning rod for a lot of different issues. Sure. So um, if, you know, anyone out there is listening and is not kind of um, aware what the book was about, the book I wrote, Pitbull, uh, The Battle Over an American Icon, battle being the operative operative term, I guess, um, was basically a, a social history of these dogs, uh, pit bulls or pit bull terriers. All these things are kind of misnomers now. Um, and the role they've played in American history and American culture and kind of American consciousness over time. And a lot of that had to do with kind of um, moral panics and um, public hysterias over things. Um, there, were a lot of which were, you know, a lot of that stuff was happening in the 1980s. So there, were, we had the satanic panic, and there was the child abduction, you know, panic and stranger danger and all these things, road rage. Um, and pit bulls were kind of part of that. So through the book, I parsed not only the history of the dogs, but the science of behavior and really deconstructed how panics get built, kind of how the house that panic built was constructed. Um, and there's a core group of people, a very small group of people, um, but a very devoted group who um, position themselves as victims advocates, you know, advocating for people who have been bitten or injured by dogs. Um, but they're not really advocates. They're kind of, they're more like dedicated trolls. Um, and so they've turned this movement into, for lack of a better term, a hate group, uh, a hate group for dogs, uh, specifically for pit bulls. So, 
Um, I mentioned them a little bit in the book, but I tried not to get into them too much at length because I didn't want to give them um, a larger platform. But I was well aware they were out there. Um, and it's probably a group of, you know, maybe 20 people. I mean, we're not talking about a huge movement, but they do spend an incredible amount of time on the Internet all day, every day. Um, many aliases like this is their thing. And so when the book came out, I started getting um, messages from an anonymous Facebook page that said um, basically that they were going to destroy me Um that I was a fraud. They called me a whore, a bitch. You know, I'm, I don't know how family friendly this is. Oh, you know, you, yeah, you can say whatever you, yeah, whatever they, you like. Yeah. They hoped I would be mauled to death. Oh. They made jabs about my um, deceased father having alcoholism. Um, they posted photos of my house online. And it was just kind of this unrelenting thing. But still, it was just kind of the internet, so I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And then at one reading, a reading that was actually very close to my house, a guy showed up and started, you know, just kind of um, hammering me with questions about why didn't I talk to this person? Why didn't I talk to that person? Um, trying to imply that somehow I did not care that people had been injured by these dogs when, of course, I, I very much did care. And I spent, you know, a good bit of the book trying to, to get into that and especially trying to help people learn the best ways to prevent such things from happening. So, um, but he was disruptive enough that the, the manager of the bookstore called the police and uh, so that I could have a police escort out to my car. And I left the, the store through the back entrance. But then that didn't really stop any of the harassment. It just kept going and going. So it got to the point where I really couldn't post anything on my f public Facebook page without just being bombed with these like sock puppet troll accounts and stores where I read would their pages would also be swarmed by trolls. And there would be um, these folks would call and complain to the stores. They even sent actual snail mail to a couple of the stores. And so it just got to be this ridiculous thing where my publisher had to, at some of the readings, hire private security. And it was really unfortunate because the, the severity or the disruption that, that such a small number of people were able to cause was so kind of alarming that it, it almost drowned out all the positive attention and the positive feedback that I was getting from the book, which meant so much to me. I mean, so many people came out to my readings and were so supportive. And I just, you know, being able to meet readers is an absolute dream come true for any writer. And it was just kind of bizarre that the whole process kind of got co-opted by this small number of people who just have way too much time on their hands. But it was also really interesting to see that happen in the context of 200, uh, 2016 in general mm -hmm. um, and what other journalists were going through and kind of the way we live now and what it means to be a writer as a public person, even when you're as obscure as I am, if you do anything now and put your name to it, you're kind of inviting this, you know, army of, of trolls yeah. to, 
move into your life. And it's really, it's really strange. I think it requires a different level of courage to do it now than it might have, you know, um, 50, 60 years ago. Do you find that despite this uh, awakening of this kind of particular troll culture that really sort of hijacked a lot of the positive attention for, for your book and, and for you and, was do you look back on it and say it was still worth it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um just to be able to see something that you've put so much time into have a life outside your head is amazing and to connect with readers and to see that despite everything we hear about the digital age that people really do they are still lining up to buy books and they do still care about a culture of reading and learning and um just kind of you know the the community um that that books provide in that sense um was really heartening and i think if i had kind of let that put me off writing i you know i would have just felt you know what a horrible waste I mean, I, I think everyone hates bullies, but especially, you know, I hate them especially. Um, and I and I hate that so many people are feeling kind of threatened or intimidated by by the way we live and that, you know, trolls are just everywhere now. I, I, what I thought about during the entire process was as bad as it got, I kept thinking about all the other writers out there who might have been seeing what was happening and might have said, well, I don't want to do that then. Mm -hmm. And that's horrible, you know, because the only way a culture kind of corrects itself is when people refuse to be cowed by that kind of bullshit. Yeah. And uh, in listening to some other uh, podcasts with like uh, with, you know, Tim Ferriss, he talks about that he had a a girlfriend of his. He put a jar on his desk and it was called like the jar of awesome and it was like mm-hmm. if something really good happened to him because it's easy to get drowned out by a lot of just negative stuff especially if you're in the creative space you know you put a yeah. little piece of paper in there it's just to and then pull it pull out the paper when you needed a little jolt and um you kind of like talked about that like you're you know on amazon i think well last i checked you had 187 ratings for pitbull it's like a four point it might be more than that it's like 4.87 out of five stars so like massive massive positive response and deservedly so so what were some of those positive experiences that you were able to to help drown out a lot of that negative bullying trolling behavior that uh really fueled you you know to the to this day i mean really just the most energizing thing for me as simple as it sounds was to go to any city and see that there were a whole crowd of people willing to pay 26.95 for something i wrote and they were li- willing to spend an hour of their time listening to me talk about it and then spend however many 10 12 13 hours reading it was just it meant so incredibly much to me i can't possibly articulate it i mean it's almost worth i mean i get kind of you know almost worked up about it it just meant so much to have that kind of support but also to see how you know i was very um worried 
uh, probably overly worried, but very worried about getting things right in the book because there were so many competing perspectives and there was a lot of tricky science that I had to um, parse and I didn't want to do the subject or my readers a disservice by being sloppy about any of that. I really wanted to get it right. And I checked and I checked and I rechecked and checked and had sent the draft to experts and had them look it over and all kinds of things. But you still wonder in that kind of dark night of the soul, you still wake up sweating sometimes thinking, oh, my God, what if I got something wrong? And it was really amazing how positive the response was from reviewers who um, who reviewed the book and they themselves had a scientific background. So the Wall Street Journal review was written by Pat Shipman, who's a you know renowned paleoanthropologist who has written an incredible book about the way humans and animals evolved together. And so human-animal relationships over the course of history are her specialty. And she loved the book. And she's one of my heroes. So the, the fact that she dropped me a note after that came out and said how much she enjoyed it was just just awesome. Um, same with like Dr. Laurel Braitman, who wrote this incredible book called Animal Madness. And it was about mental illness in animals and how we kind of think of animals. The traditional view is that they're these like, you know, automata um, or, you know, these kind of machines that don't have the same sensitivities and vulnerabilities uh, mentally that we do. But the science is, is very clear that that animals can can have mental illness or, you know, compulsions or obsessions or anxieties the same way that we can. Um, and she also reviewed the book for the New York Times and again, dropped me a note and said that she loved it. And that was just that was just amazing. But it was also really powerful to get notes from readers who said things like, I was not interested in this subject, uh, but I just picked the book up randomly. And it made me think so much about my own prejudices. And I realized that I have more prejudices even against, you know, groups of people than I than I realized. And that's something I really want to work on. And I got several of those. And that just meant, meant more to me than I can say. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a amazing to get that that degree of validation, especially from such sort of like people you respect too. That and to then it's it goes beyond that because now you they're essentially telling you that you're one of us, you're you're a peer, and that must have been especially moving too. That's the kind of the subtext of what they're saying is that you're well, you're one of us now. Um, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I am still very much the new kid on the block. But having people that I admire kind of, you know, pat me on the back and say, you know, good job, kid. Like, you, you did it really meant so much. And just, you know, there were lots of things that were about the process that I think I'm always surprised when people are as as generous or kind or supportive as they are, but you know, people at my publisher were just wonderful. It was it was almost like family, and and just it's it's so surprising to me still that anyone would be interested in anything I had to say. It shocks me every damn day. And you talked about the the research being so intensive, and then you know worrying about whether you got certain things right, and just and I remember in our last conversation, just the 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 
volume of stuff that you had, like in Evernote and everywhere, just all this information. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The unofficial sponsor of last podcast yeah, was Evernote. Right. Um, but TM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like so much information it's easy to get bogged down and then it's easy not to ship the product finally right, um, yeah. at what point did you finally relent and say it's time to go you've got to go <laughs> to the book um when i when i realized i think when i and i'm not the first writer to put it this way i'm sure but i think at the point in the research where i wasn't learning anything new where, I mean, in one sense, I was always learning something new, but where you keep hearing the same things over and over again, or you, as I think Susan Orlean says, you meet yourself coming the other way. So you've mm. interviewed all these people, and then you get to, to a point where they say, have you talked to so-and-so, and, and you already have. You know, so you're, you start to encounter um, pieces of research or other sources that you've already talked to. And so there's not much new ground to kind of turn up or because you have been obsessively working on this thing full time for a period of years, you end up knowing more about the entire thing than a lot of people you're talking to who each have expertise in a certain piece of it. So once that happened, I realized that, um, I just had, you know, the the pain, as you say, the pain of not shipping it, the pain of not having some sense of completion was it far outweighed the anxiety about doing it. And of course, you know, I mean, deadlines help. Um, yeah, my yeah. book I think was a year, a year late, um, mm. unfortunately, because I just kept nail biting over the details. And at a certain point, just as a professional, as a person, you just, you know, it's important to kind of um, not let that stuff drag on too long. But yeah, so, uh, but at some point I did have to, I think I told you this last time, I had to just get out, get out of my office. I had accumulated so much stuff. I just had to, it was almost like, a, it was almost like a physical weight that was crushing me. It was files, it was photos, it was everything. And I had to just basically move into a blank empty carol in the duke law library and just bang it out right right and the last time we spoke you were in the final like i think hard edits of your conspiracy cruise <laughs> conspiracy theory cruise and um it's it, what was funny you were going through the the pitbull uh, the pitbull tour and then uh, you know at some point this this piece comes out and mm -hmm. and that exposed you to another set of of trolling behavior and paranoid people and uh, yeah and I, it's funny it's like it, you know in a lot of these things that they're you're at the center of of this these universes here that really exposed you to a lot of you know, criticism and vitriol and I wonder like is there a part of you that feels like that's where you need to get the story to get, you know, like what part of you wants to be at that spot? Because at that intersection is where the conflict is. Yes. Um, that's a great observation. And there's a lot of that. that's very true. I am very much drawn to, um, kind of upending stereotypes or going into a community of people that, 
the public may think it knows um, and trying to find something different and surprising and human there that, that, you know, just kind of upends those expectations because, you know, I think all of us at some point, some more than others, but all of us have been on the receiving end of, of some kind of, um, bad stereotyping. I, I know even like being from the South, I've often had people assume that I was dumb or that I had certain political views or, you know, that kind of thing, or being a woman, you know, people assume certain things about you, et cetera. So I've always been interested in stereotypes and kind of upending them. So when I, you know, go into a community, like people who love pit bulls, <laughs> you think a certain thing about those people. Mm-hmm. And I found something very different. Um, conspiracies, <laughs> conspiracy theorists. I was very interested in the kind of the psychology of that, partially because of the research that I had done for the book. And a lot of these people that ended up um, trolling me from the Pitbull thing had a very had very much of a conspiracy theorist mindset that I must be working for some kind of dogfighting lobby, that I must have been paid by someone to write this book, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's when I started researching it and I became really interested in that mindset. And that's what kind of led me to do the conspiracy story. And there were a lot of those folks that I met on that on that conspiracy cruise who I really enjoyed and were really wonderful. And then there were a couple who were really problematic, but yeah, I think getting into those conflicts is, is where stories happen. But when you go into a community where people are so passionate, it's a hundred percent guaranteed that some of them are not going to like what you have to say, no matter how hard you try to, um, paint them in an empathetic light or, you know, dig under the surface. They are, regardless, if there are people who have, who are passionately attached to something or who have rigid views about one thing or another, they are not going to like um, what you say. And that's a really uncomfortable moment. And what was most interesting about that year and kind of getting hit from it, hit, hit from both sides with that stuff um, was that before it happened, before it started happening to me, that was probably my number one fear. I think public humiliation, nobody likes the thought of public humiliation and being consistently trolled has this element, like what they are attempting to do is embarrass you in public in some way. It's like a performance. Um, but then once it happens, you realize like there's really nothing people can actually do to you that matters. I mean, they can try to say mean things about you on the internet and that's emotionally draining. But, um, you know, the people I work with, the editors I work with, they all know who I am. They all know that stuff's ridiculous. My husband loves me. My friends love me. My family loves me. I have a very solid network of people who care about me and the people I've worked with as sources or whatever they know that, you know, I treat them with respect and and all that. So there's really nothing that they can actually do. It's just this kind of background noise. And it's draining and awful. But um, once you kind of come through it, there's this like, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a war reporter mentality or something. You're just like, okay, you know, put on the hazmat suit and let's go out there and get the job done. (laughs) 
Um, and that's kind of, that's really liberating. And I would suggest to anyone out there who's afraid of something like that happening, um, you do come through it and it makes you stronger and you are much better prepared for the next story you take on. So dancing with that fear is ultimately where people need to learn to be because that's where, that's where all the great work is taking place and all the great work that has been done is usually because someone had had to face their fear and have the courage to power through and and do the work and put themselves in in uncomfortable positions to do something that's special something and something that will resonate with greater purpose and will actually have some staying power so it's like yeah what you, what, i mean one hope yeah. so yeah for sure and also i think it's just it's hard, I think, especially for writers, because we are so critical of ourselves. And to have your writing out there um, kind of attacked is like every writer's worst fear in a lot of ways. It's like the dream that you show up naked at school or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the good stories are the ones where that's probably likeliest to happen. And at least, you know, if it does happen to you, my God, you are not alone. It's happening to everybody. And so, you know, um, it's just one of, it's one of those, uh, risks of the job. And if it means enough to you, you just have to power through it with a lot of, you know, beers and crying on people's shoulders and that kind of thing. Now it's, the criticism that comes from outside once the piece is done, like that's its own beast. There's also the type of self-criticism that goes on before it's published where you have a perfect vision in your head of what you want it to look like. But as you're going through drafts, it does not match that ideal that's in your head. And sometimes that can, in and of itself, is going to be very paralyzing because it's you're doing some work, but it doesn't fit the ideal you've made for it. And the the people who do this do this and do this well can they look beyond the perfect vision in their head and they get it to a close point by doing doing the work so like how do you how do you uh reconcile say the perfect vision in the head versus the work that has to get done in order to somewhat meet that ideal how do you overcome the negative self-talk in the drafting process i'm so the wrong person to ask because if i have a pathology um that is it and that sometimes it's completely paralyzing. Um, perfectionism will truly kill you. It will kill your work. It will kill anything that's original about your voice. It will kill everything good that you're trying to do. And it doesn't, saying that doesn't make it go away. I struggle with it every day. And that's why, you know, fortunately in nonfiction, if you are, you know, writing for magazines, et cetera, or you have a certain, Uh, book project that's going deadlines really do help because at the end I think Paul Valéry the French poet said um, you know a poem is never finished it's only abandoned and I think that's probably true for any piece of writing I know it's certainly true for mine everything that I have ever written I I can't read (laughs) because I go back and I think oh I should have changed that or I could have done this better it's very painful for me seeing that um, because it's probably like 50% suckier than I hoped it would be. Um, but deadlines really are great in that they force you through it. Also, though, um, at a certain point, 
considering like the just mountain of stuff that is out there and the mountain of stuff that people are consuming. Um, if I write a really bad story, (laughs) I hate it, but you know, the world goes on. The world will absolutely keep spinning on its axis. If I write a story that just fucking blows. (laughs) So, you know, there, there's a little bit of, you have to get over yourself part of it. Like, um, I heard Francis Ford Coppola once talk about filmmaking and he said that someone asked him, does he feel pressure? Um, knowing how many greats there have been in film and his own films. I mean, God, the Godfather, how do you compete with that the next time? And he said, I really don't feel that because I know it's not going to be the best film that's ever made. I mean, there's already been Fellini. They've already been these incredible, you know, it's, I don't have to worry about that, but the likelihood is that it's not going to be the worst. So I'm free to kind of do whatever I I want in between. And that's, that's something good to remember. I remember I walked into, there were a bunch of times when I walked into like Barnes and Noble randomly in an attempt to like soothe my own anxiety. And I would just look around and I would be like, Bronwyn, all these people did it. Mm -hmm. Like there are people here who like, there are people on these shelves who wrote things like books about how to knit a sweater out of cat hair and shit like that. (laughs) If they can, like Snooki wrote a novel. If they can do it, Bronwyn, you can do it. That's kind of how I feel about Jose Canseco. Like he's got, (laughs) that that guy's got two books on steroids out in baseball. Like obviously he didn't really write it, but I'm like, I I will not have made it until I surpass the Ovra, or however you pronounce that word, of Jose Canseco. (laughs) I mean, you know, all these people found a way to get through it. So, you know, all you can do is all you can do. And I think um, I'm not to like pile quotes on top of quotes on top of quotes, but like Elizabeth Gilbert saying, you know, I promised I would show up and do the work. I did not promise that the work would be good. Oh, she's great. I love yeah, her. Yeah, she's really, talk about a generous heart and someone who I always, I, I feel very put off when people who have done very successful work, uh, when other writers out of their own pettiness or jealousy, when they kind of like rag on people. Um, and she got so much of that. Mm-hmm. And she's still out there trying to inspire people and encourage them. And amen to that, man. Amen to that. That's great. That's what we all should be doing. Yeah, because she was uh, an obscure novelist before Eat, Pray, Love. She didn't set out to write a blockbuster. She set out to write a book that scratched her own itch, and it just happened to just catch lightning. She didn't ask for that, and she's taking that power and that platform, and then she... I think she got pressured probably into writing the sequel, whatever. Mm. Um, But then she wrote a beautiful novel and a signature of all things, which Mm -hmm. I I loved because she needed to get back to the core of who she is, which is a novelist. And then she writes Big Magic, which is speaks to the I've read it twice. It's a wonderful book and it's one of the most generous things a writer or an artist can read. And she gave that gift to everyone out of the fame that came from the the memoir that people just you know, chastise and chastise her for the fame that it gave, that she didn't ask for. It's yeah. I mean, it's just, it's horrible to see what people will do, like trying to tear down people out of their own insecurities. It's just such a shame to see that happen. 
Um, I mean, look at what look at what Stephen King has gone through. And you talk about a generous, you know, kind, extraordinarily gifted person who has read so capaciously and wants nothing more than to inspire a love of reading and support writers. You know, I mean, he's yeah. like one of my absolute heroes. How did you come to know Philip Gerard, or how did he reach out to you for his book, Art of Creative Research? I don't know him well. He came to he came to a panel that I think I did at AWP with Maggie, actually. Okay. On research. And I can't, I'm even blanking on what I said. I was just kind of riffing on things I'd learned about why truth matters. Because yeah. there's always going to, yeah, there's always going to be this conversation about, well, does it matter if it's true? Does it matter well, creative license? <laughs> yes, it matters if it's true. <laughs> if you're telling people, you know, like, mm, what's a fact? Mm, you know, which is like, John Degata, I understand you're very, very talented, extremely talented. You've done great, imaginative, wonderful work. But what is a fact? We do not need to, to uh-huh. parse. A fact is a fact. Yeah. I just read that book for, uh, about a month ago. And I, I just, if I had hair, it would be, I would look like I am now, which is to say no hair. I was just like ripping ripping my hair out part of his point you know is to start that provocative conversation which is a very worthy conversation but yeah i will definitely pound my fist on the table and say god damn it a fact (laughs) is a fact yeah yeah so like i've got i've got the what phil chose to quote you as uh, in in his book because i I spoke to him a few episodes ago and i just know him from goucher and he's just an awesome awesome dude and um but you you say here it's like a never ever lose your sense of skepticism, benevolent skepticism, but skepticism. As a writer, the most important tool in your toolbox is the question: How do you know that? Do you remember what he asked you when you had that conversation? Or no, I think we were just kind of riffing. We were all just kind of going back and forth and talking about why you know in in research why it's important to kind of go the extra mile. Um, and find out the facts, you know, there's that kind of journalistic old saw that something's too good to check. Um, but nothing's too good to check. Um, and the truth is always more interesting than, than whatever you kind of might see on the the surface. Um, but yeah, my benevolent skepticism was one of the things my mentor, Patty O'Toole, who was a biographer she wrote a great biography of teddy roosevelt she used to say is that like that's the the attitude you should you should go around with as a reporter and the how do you know that thing came about when i was researching the book and so many people were convinced of what they knew about pit bulls about genetics about science about history about all these subjects i think the the digital age another thing that it has done is empowered people with so much information that lots of people assume they know a lot more than they do. And in the nicest way possible, I had to kind of gently nudge people and say, you know, when they were asserting things as true, well, how do you know that? Well, everybody knows that. Well, no, they don't. Um, and that's, it, it's really important because people will, I think, especially in the reporting process, if you're interviewing someone, a lot of times they'll want to impress you in some way. 
um, because it's very flattering to have someone come to you and say, I think your, your viewpoint is important and I would like to interview you and hear what you have to say. And I think sometimes we forget as reporters, we forget that, that people aren't used to that. And um, they might be trying to kind of puff up a little bit, not because they're trying to be um, dishonest in any way, but just because they want to make your time worth it. And um, if, if there's anything I can do to, to gently kind of disarm that and uh, relax how I talk to sources and kind of, you know, dig into what they really think and believe and know, then, then that's what I'm trying to do. But yeah, it, a lot of people really don't like it when you say that. And so you have to be very delicate about how you how you phrase it for sure. But it is an awesome tool and it has never done me wrong. Yeah, it's a it's a fairly if you preface it if you preface it strategically, it's a fairly easy question to ask. Be like, "Oh, that's like that's really interesting, but help me get a greater understanding of how you how you came to know that cuz yeah, exactly. I, you know that what? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, like a really, really good way to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, how long can you sit without a writing project? Oh, uh, um, good question, Brendan. <laughs> um, yeah, um, a couple of months max, and that's kind of the the point that I've been in this year is the book took so much out of me. It took so much out of me emotionally, psychologically, even physically um, that I, I think I told you last time I was getting to this point where I was like propped up in bed and typing all day and I, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating well. I was living on caffeine. And so I felt really wired all the time and my health was just not good. Um, so, uh, coming off of that is like coming off this weird years long work bender. Um, that's just exhausting. And then the, the, um, the book tour stuff and the publicity stuff where if, you know, like if you're like me, who's kind of an introvert, if you have to be kind of on display and be on and you really want to be on because people are buying your book and they, they deserve your time. Um, then it, it takes a lot out of you. And so I kind of hibernated for a while, but my, my brain needs something to chew on and it always does. So I am now finally at that stage where I can't stand to not be working on something meaningful and big. So I'm like, I'm turning my, my focus to that now, but still it's, every project feels like being at the bottom of Everest and like, you're going to have to get up there with like roller skates or something. That's what it feels like. So are you in, in a book research or like a long magazine piece research mode? Um, both. Mm -hmm. And the book research, I won't talk about so much since that's, um, I mean, that hasn't even been proposed yet. So it's literally just an idea sitting in my head and some files on my computer and a spreadsheet of people to talk to. Um, but yeah, there's some, a couple of, uh, long magazine pieces I'm, I'm trying to get together, but again, anything after, after the thing you've been working on for years, it all feels a little 
daunting. I was grateful that the conspiracy thing that I pretty much had to bang that one out while I was doing uh, book tour stuff. It was hell at the time, but I couldn't fixate on it as obsessively as I otherwise would have and worry about it so much. I had to just get it out there. Um, cause when I, yeah, when I ruminate too much, it's not a, it's not a good thing. Are you like with your agent or anything given, given the success of Pitbull, are, are you feeling, uh, some outward pressure be like, okay, what's, what's the, the encore? What's the follow up to that? No. Uh, because, well, I, I, I don't know. Or at know. least to have an idea, um, not to like, you know, like some, oh, um, what's the next book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, but I think that's for, for most, you know, what, no matter how you, your book does or, you know, if it finds readership or not. I think, you know, once the time to kind of strike while the iron is hot is when people are thinking about your current book, which is it doesn't give writers a whole lot of time. Um, but in terms of whether or not people are ever going to read anything I write again, um, I don't feel that kind of pressure because I feel so lucky to be here in the first place. I, I never, I remember in grad school, um, doing my MFA, writing these really short pieces and looking at the kids who were working on book length projects and thinking they must have this magical, special capability that I would never have. Like, how could you do a book? Like, that's so big, a book. Um, how, the, the idea that there would be a book out there that I could go into a bookstore and there would be something with my name on it was just so outside of what I thought I could do. Um, that I feel so grateful for the opportunity that I've been given in the first place, that it's um, it felt to me like a lightning strike. And so I don't expect that to ever happen again. And if it does, that's gravy. You know, given that you're, you're kind of working on some magazine stuff and all that, uh, it's what is uh you know what are what are your days how, how have you been shaping your days to, to start to, to get to work on this stuff? Mm hmm. You want the real answer or like the good answer? I mean, the real answer is <laughs> the facts. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think the the um, <laughs> I don't think it can actually be, be discounted as much as I hate to like bring this stuff up in like the the pure space of the creative nonfiction podcast. Um, but I, I was really I was really knocked off my center by the election. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a, a lot of writers are kind of going through that in that the world seems tilted in a way, you know, like there things I was very sure of about the world don't seem to be so sure. Um, and I think there's a lot of kind of fear and anxiety, just kind of seeing the, the partisanship and the tensions between groups and kind of the vitriol um, and the divisions that are out there, I think was really, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, and that was destabilizing for a while. So it was hard to concentrate on anything else. And I say that by way of saying that like now I feel compelled to read the news for much longer each day than I did. And on, in some ways, it's good to be that informed. But in other ways, it really takes away from the time that you need to be doing other things. 
So I've had the past couple of months, that's been a real struggle for me. Whereas before, you know, it was easier to get up and scrawl in my notebook and, you know, do a cursory, cursory look of the times in the post or whatever, and then get to work. Now it's like, oh my God, are we all going to die? Mm-hmm. So that's a little different. And I'm still trying to figure out how to accommodate that and kind of um, put that put that to the side and, and get back to focusing on the things that are most important to me. It's fine. Bef- before I let you get out of here on this little segment, like I'm, I'm reading um, Hellhound on His Trail by Hampton Sides. Yeah. Have, have you read Hampton that? Sides. No, but I love his writing. I love his writing. Yeah, so... It's funny that you just you know bring up the current political climate. Like I just read this chapter last night before I before I went to bed, and it was um, talking about George Wallace. And uh, you know, at the beginning of this chapter, he's like he was called the surly or- orphan of American politics, the the grim mm-hmm. joker in the deck whose night rider candidacy is a rough approximation of the potential for an American fascism. Mm-hmm. This is nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, and then later in the chapter. Uh, Life magazine wrote, in both the North and South, Wallace appears to be tapping a powerful underground stream of discontent. And I was Mm -hmm. just like, holy shit, this is 50 years ago. I know. He didn't win, but the, 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 what he was platforming on won Trump the election. And it's just like, holy shit, like, we've come so far and not far at all. It's, I know. And look at what happened in those years. You know, I mean, you talk about upheaval. Um, you know, how much injustice and hatred and backlash and, you know, people, the whole country seems to be coming apart in so many ways then because of hatred, look at the assassinations and all the things that were happening. It was just, I, I can't imagine what it was like to live through that time, except that this is this time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and, and people have, a whole new arsenal of tools to to rain down hate on each other. And so like the, our ability to, I mean, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Our ability to spread hate is exponentially greater now than it was in the 1960s. At least then you had to show up to a demonstration or show up to someone's house or send them an actual letter. Like you had to do something that, that that it required a serious amount of effort and now there are so many ways you can ruin lives with you know a couple of strings of code well Bronwyn, thank you uh so much for taking time out of your morning to talk shop and this is always always fun and uh Absolutely. deeply grateful for your time and so yeah anytime man anytime <laughs>